From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories a Storytelling Show This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez Stories and Conversations with Immigrants, Refugees, Second, Third Generations and Allies where we explore the ideas, policies and histories that forge national identity, community and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. As immigrants, what are our responsibility to having brave conversations on race in America and how do we have them? In this episode, storyteller Namisha Latva shows us that beginning the work of dismantling racism requires looking within ourselves and our own communities. First, here's Namisha's story as told on stage for 80 minutes around the world, Immigration Stories, on April 13, 2019 at the Caveat in Manhattan. So I am shopping at a large uh, membership warehouse store with a two-year-old, my daughter, Uh, which is basically like shopping with a fireball with legs. And the only chance I have to make it out of there without losing my sanity is to like hurl through the store with my cart, like, like mom NASCAR style, and just like, you know, tear through the aisles, throw back a sample if I can get my hands on one, just try to get out before the child wants to escape the cart. And, you know, I, as I'm going through, I get samples, she just refuses them and We finally get to one, uh, someone is sharing uh, cheese ravioli. And I throw mine back and I throw one at my daughter and she eats it. And so I stop and I let her eat it. And the next fabulous thing that happens is the piece of paper, like the fluted cup thing that it came in, turns out to be a fantastic child distraction device. And I realized that if I could get um, another paper cup, I could keep her occupied and make it out of the store relatively intact. And so I turn to the, the sample lady and I say, uh, my daughter loves your ravioli. I have already committed, you know, I've already gone to the fridge and collected my like seven pound bag of ravioli. She can see it in my cart. And I tell her, you know, all I, all I need really is just like one more paper cup and then I could be, um, you know, she could be happy and I could make it through the store. And I'm really excited. I've figured out this solution. And she looks at me and she says, no, no, I, I'm not going to give you another paper cup. I said, but, <clears throat> and, and I, I just freeze. I, I'm, I'm so shocked that she won't give me a paper cup. And I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I could have just taken it. If I had my wits about me, I could have just grabbed a second ravioli. Like, it's not that complicated. I could have uh, gone into professor mode and told her about the, you know, the benefits of building good customer relations or the economics of that single piece of paper cup is like less than a penny and I just committed to like $15 worth of cheese ravioli and, and I do nothing because the thought in my head is would she have said no to my husband a nice Jewish boy from Chicago 
I mean, maybe she would have. Maybe she's just a mean, nasty person. Uh, maybe she was hungry because um, I'm cranky when I'm hungry. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe she would have just said no to him. But the truth is, I don't believe it. I can't get the thought out of my mind that she said no to me because of the color of my skin. There's a fact about her that I haven't told you. I've withheld it for a reason. I haven't told you what the sample lady looked like. The sample lady was black. And when I told my um, South Asian friends about what happened, they said, yeah, that's happened to us too. When I told my black friend about it, she said, yeah, there's a lot of anger in my community. Maybe yours too? And when I told my white friend about it, she said, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't think two people of color would treat each other that way. And I thought, white people don't have a monopoly on racism. <laughs> and, and I'm embarrassed to say this because there's something else I have to be honest about. And that is that in my own community, there is a lot of anti-black racism. And I'm ashamed of it. And let me give you a couple of examples. Kamala Harris. <laughs> so I remember talking to a family member about Kamala Harris, who is South Asian and black. And I said, oh, so amazing. She's running for president. She's one of us. She has the same name as my dad's sister. And this family member said, she's not really one of us. And I, I started to get ready to like lay in to this conversation, like try to change her mind. And I flash back to something that happened years ago with the same family member. You see, when I was in high school, um, another Indian girl I knew had a black boyfriend. And when her parents found out, she killed herself at her funeral. People said it was for the best. This relative that I'm trying to talk to had been at that funeral and had agreed with the sentiment. And so I gave up. I gave up on her. I gave up on the conversation. I gave up trying to fix it. But I didn't give up absolutely. And I'll tell you why. After the 2016 election, I was telling a story somewhere. I was sharing about my own immigration story, about the fact that I had become undocumented and that I had been arrested and that I had come before an immigration judge with my family. And that immigration judge had simply looked at my family and seen that three of us were undocumented and my seven-year-old brother was a U.S. citizen and simply declared, while he starts foster care today and the rest of you can go. That's a whole other story. I stand before you today a U.S. citizen. But the truth is, when I was done with that story, I was leaving the facility. And as I was leaving, the security guard grabbed me. And he was holding on to my arm. And I started to shake. It's like, well, what did I do wrong? I, am I in the wrong place? Am I going to set off an alarm? Is he just mad at me about something? And I looked at his face and time absolutely froze. He looked at me 
And he said, you know what? I have been so caught up with what it's been like for me to be a black man in America. It never occurred to me that it was hard for other people too. And I looked at him and I saw my arm in his and I wondered, how did he get here? How did I get here? How are we connected now? And I remember among my ancestors, among my ancestors is a woman named Natima. She is my great grandmother. I didn't know her name until I started to think about the story and I had to WhatsApp my cousins to figure out who she was. See, the stories I've heard is that she was widowed very young and was left with two boys to raise by herself in India. As a widow in India, she was considered a burden and abandoned by her in-laws. Or maybe she wasn't. No one knows. Whatever happened, at some point, her, fa- her in-laws decided that they were going to move from India to Kenya to see if their labor would be worth more from one British colony to another British colony. They didn't invite her. But on the last day, she realized what was happening, and she ran to the boat. She threw her two boys onto the boat, and in a desperate measure, she jumped onto that boat as well. Or maybe she didn't. No one really knows the story. I've only heard different versions from different people. Whatever happened, I was born in Kenya, the great-granddaughter of her older son. I look at my arm in his arm, and I re- in the security guard's arm, and I realize, I realize that until this moment, I had only been another non-black person to him. Until this moment, he had only been like the sample lady to me. We look at each other and there are tears in both of our eyes. And we do the only thing there is left to do. We hug each other. And I realize, we, in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we are all in the same boat now. Thank you. Here's Namisha again in my interview with her in Philadelphia, where we look at how, as immigrants, we are not only the object of racism, but also, if we're not careful and vigilant, its producers. I wanted to be honest and sort of open about the kind of racism that exists in my own community against other people of color and the sort of color hierarchy that exists and that if we really want to tackle racism, we have to look at all parts of it and not shy away from the ones that are uncomfortable or make us look bad. You know, one thing is, um, one of the things I had anxiety about when I was choosing to tell this story was whether by making it about inter, like two people of color 
experiencing racism when I was talking about the sample lady I wanted to make sure also that we weren't saying see dominant culture people it's you're not the only people who do this don't feel so badly you know mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be a, a getting people off the hook I still think I, I I wanted it more to be a story about just because you're a person of color doesn't get you off the hook from examining your own racism. And even if you're not a person of color, when you see the inter-color anti-whatever racism, um, you you don't let yourself off the wires. At least I don't do that, you know? So I I just think that racism is more complicated than we sometimes pay attention to. And it takes constant work and vigilance. And it's possible that in trying to do that work, we will make mistakes You know, I have been in situations where I have definitely said the wrong thing and had to go back and own it. And unless we have the space to let people make mistakes, um, you know, I say that and I immediately want to backtrack. It's like, well, how many mistakes are okay? And what kind of a mistake are you willing to tolerate? Because it's, it's just that complicated. As soon as you make a blanket statement, there are so many contradictory things in the way that I think um, it paralyzes people from having any conversation about race, that it's better to just avoid it than to risk talking about it and make mistakes and then be labeled as less woke or secretly racist or you know, all, the thi- all the labels that we're afraid of when we talk about these things. Uh, you know, I grew up in England, and so we were some of, I was the only family of color in our area we were the only family of color in my school so we experienced a lot of direct racism from our white neighbors it wasn't as if I didn't have anyone who was kind to me but it was very easy to sort of make fun of me or exclude me and my parents experienced it at their jobs I experienced it they really just got racism fatigue so we were very clear that racism exists and we were very clear that we were subject to racism we were the objects of racism but the fact that we ourselves produce racism never part of the conversation we certainly talked about the racism we experienced as victims of racism but actually owning that we have racism was never a conversation for my parents we grew up you know they grew up in the british colonies in east africa and there was actually a hierarchy of what kind of citizen you were. If you were white, you were a first-class citizen. If you were South Asian, you were a second-class citizen. And if you were black, an actual native person who <laughs> more than anyone had the right to be there, you were a third-class citizen. And the entire government and setup was based on these three classifications of citizen. So my parents grew up in a system where they learned that they were in this middle tier and they knew who was above them and they knew who was below them and that was true for a lot of that was the fact of living for all the South Asians who grew up in the East African British colonies so you take that bureaucratic external structural setup and it very conveniently fits onto what's happening in America so you know you see african-american people and i think a lot of people are bringing with them the third class citizen mentality to add a correction to that though um you know that's 
because we come from this British colonial system. But a lot of the South Asians in this country came in the 60s because of the high-skilled labor, um, doctors, researchers, um, engineers, of course, and they skipped the whole living in a colony in or going back to Britain. They skipped all of that, and they were also far more educated than you know, people I grew up around. And even in that community, mm-hmm. which I am now a part of, um, I am South Asian in America, even in that community, it's clear that there's still the same anti-black racism, and it's very disappointing. Namisha continues with just how difficult this work can be, but that shifts can happen when we, immigrants, allies, all of us, are brave enough to have honest conversations about race in America. I think this might be something that a lot of people who experience racism feel, which is... I, you know, as a person of color, you you never know for sure, most of the time, if what happened happened because of the color of your skin. You may have a gut feeling about it, but it is always possible that your gut feeling is wrong. And that person was just having a crappy day that had nothing to do with the color of your skin. I really get that as a legitimate possibility. I also know that whether or not that person is acting out of a reaction to the color of my skin, I shut down. I'm so shocked that this thing happened that I just, I I think I probably regressed to the kid who was bullied as the only person of color, the only brown girl growing up in my school. Like I just, that is my coping mechanism, I suppose. The, I would love to be one of these um, racial justice warriors who just always has the best comeback and just shuts people down with like so much smart fury and just like walks away with their head high. But my experience talking to many people of color is when these incidents happen, the first reaction is to just recede into your shell and just accept that something just happened and I, I'm frozen. And when I say I froze, I actually mean I froze. Like I was unable to process and really do anything about it at the moment. I know that there are people out there who always have the best thing to say at the right moment. I have fantastic things to say, usually 24 to 46 hours, 36 hours after the thing has happened and when it's completely useless. That's when I have the recovery time to actually do something about it and and maybe that's it when you experience it is a kind of violence and when you experience it the idea that you wouldn't need any recovery from that is maybe an unfair expectation of human beings maybe that's why we talk so much about having allies or allies doing the right thing or you know what it is to be a bystander and how to i i at some point i think it's it's relatively unreasonable to expect the person themselves to be able to 
affect any change in that moment when they have really experienced a kind of violence. I had a moment where I was practicing this story actually in my Uber on the way to tell it. And the uh, I, I asked the Uber guy, you know, could I, could I practice this story? It's about racism and, you know, but I'm doing it in like a, at this event and he said sure why don't you practice so I do my story with him and he's he's you know a white uber guy and he asks me he's like well can I ask you some questions I said yeah you can ask me some questions actually there's some Q&A at this event I'm going to that's good practice for me I mean he was just starting talking a little bit about his kids and you know they're not racist but you know there's a lot of things in his school about and then he said you know I I've just really had this this question and I, I he says you know I'm white and and I'm not rich and I'm working hard and things are not working out in my you know it's, it's not like I've made it just because I'm white it's not like I I'm it basically that was actually what he said it's not like I've made it because I'm white you know I have to work hard and I I don't understand why I'm getting blamed for all this racism I'm not racist I just you know why are people so angry at white people and I said to him, you know, it is true. He said, I, I said, I really hear that things are not perfect in your life. And we should look at the reasons why things don't work out in terms of your ability to get a decent paying job or your ability to get decent health care or your ability to put your kids through college like, or having a, you know, a safe place to live. All of these things are issues we have to look at. And I get that your life is hard. I'm No one is telling you that your life is not hard. But the reason your life is hard, is hard is not because of the color of your skin. Right? The reason your life is hard is because of other reasons. But for people like me who walk around with color, often... The reason things don't work out, or we don't have access, or we can't do something, or we're in danger, mm-hmm. is precisely because of the color of our skin. And there is nothing I myself can do about the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I got out of the car. But it was, you know, I, I don't always want to have those conversations but because I was in the mode of getting to tell this story, I was willing to sort of engage him. It is really not my job to be permanently like having the racial awokeness conversation with people. But uh, in that moment, I, I was like, you know, this is this is emotional labor. This is anti-racism work that I didn't sign up to do right now in my Uber ride. And yet right now I'm 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 OK, fine, I'll do it, you know, fine. Yeah, it sounds like this Uber driver wanted to have this conversation with you. He definitely did. And perhaps he has had this question in his mind, but maybe is never in the same room with someone of color to have it with, or maybe never felt safe to have this conversation. That's a good point. I think we are so often in our silos that it's... Uber is in some ways, and Lyft, I mean, these shared rides, it, it, it is a great democratizer because who knows who's going to, 
get into someone else's car. I mean, your mom was right. You shouldn't get into strangers' cars. But if you have a conversation with a stranger, something new and different and surprising is possible. I mean, isn't that why we tell stories, Angel? Is that we want you to listen. Um, I think the most important part of storytelling is the listening part. I mean, I go, fine, I'm going to tell my story, but I learn so much when I listen to other people and I realize, you know, I'm not alone or... I hadn't thought of it that way or God, that person is so brave or I'm so heartbroken for this child who had to experience it. Like it just changes me um, and it makes my heart bigger to listen to other people's stories. And you're right. I mean, uh, he definitely has had that question, but he didn't know he was picking up me (laughs) until I was in the car. That was Philadelphia-based storyteller and writer Namisha Latva, named the best of the best storytellers in Philadelphia by First Person Arts in 2016. Namisha's stories have been broadcast on NPR's Newsworks and Common Space programs and on PBS in Stories from the Stage. She is a Grand Slam storytelling champion with the Moth and First Person Arts. Her solo performance play, Uninvited, premiered in Philadelphia in 2016 at the First Person Arts Festival and in New York in June 2018 at the Women in Theatre Festival. Most recently, her story, An American Family, was anthologized in The Risk Book, True Stories People Never Thought They Dared to Share. Namisha teaches at Haverford College in the writing program and is the public speaking and oral communication specialist there. Here's Nestor and I. On Namisha's story. She was born in Kenya from two parents who were from Indian descent, and then she was raised in England, and now she lives in the United States. And how when you look at her, people will probably try to fit her into a, into a slot, into a description of what we have of a person, but it's not as simple when every person is so unique and every person has such a different experience. I think part of her story is we all have racism. And I think what she's saying is like, as immigrants, we either could wear the lens we were given um, and then further produce racism in the US, or we could realize this, this is not the way it has to be because we've seen, we've known that there is another way. I think that that is the power of her story is that we could accurately identify and call out racism in the U.S. Even as we, as immigrants, we travel the world because we came to a different country, then we we look at our countries of origins and then we see and I'm like, oh my God, look at all these things that I didn't see when I was there. When you are able to take a look back and see the things that you couldn't see because you were so close to it. Yeah, I'm hoping other people, just like we are as immigrants, we could see our country's origins with a different lens. We could also see the struggles of other communities, and not only the, the Latino community, on my case, but not only the Guatemalan community or the Central American community, but also the Mexican community, the South American community, the Asian community, the black community, the LGBT community that also has to go through so much. And it's also being targeted right now with laws that are trying to take rights away from them and even women that are even that there's so many struggles for women right now these are things that we could look at and be like oh 
it's not only about me it's about everybody and how we all could be have a better life and help, help each other At the end of the story, she says, so how are we connected now? What do you, Nestor, think is our way forward? I think it's that we didn't all come in the same boat, but we all have experienced the same journey. We are all trying to get to a level where we could all have the same rights that everybody else has. So we all going through the same journey. We are all going through the same struggle. It's like like I keep trying to tell people with their struggles are entwined. Um, it could be because of financial reasons. It could be of political reasons. It could be because of race, because of our sexual orientation. We are just trying to be people who are free to be who we are trying to be, who we want to be. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World immigration stories more information on 80 minutes around the world immigration stories can be found on our website nestorgomezstoryteller.com and the show's facebook page please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you immigration stories podcast is created produced edited by nestor gomez and angel link Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.